Welcome to the American Association for Respiratory Care 2020 Corporate Partner Podcast. My name is Timothy Myers, and I'm the Chief Business Officer at the AARC and will serve as your host for this podcast series. Since 1947, the AARC has been leading the effort to advance the respiratory care profession and promote high-quality, cost-effective, patient-centric respiratory care. The combined efforts between the respiratory care profession and industry in pursuing unique and innovative ways to improve both the quality and outcomes of our patients make us natural partners in today's healthcare continuum. Today's podcast will highlight Fisher Paykel, a 2020 Platinum Level Corporate Partner. Joining me today is Justin Callahan, the president for Fisher Paykel's Healthcare North America business. Justin, welcome to today's 2020 Corporate Partner podcast. Good afternoon, Tim. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on board. Really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great opportunity, Justin, to interact with our, our corporate partners in industry as as we do it in a socially distanced, safe way, and and to have a conversation and learn a little bit more today about Fisher Paykel and and what's been going on in 2020. Uh, obviously, uh, we will not be able to uh, gather together at AARC Congress like we normally do, so this gives an opportunity for uh, uh, us to talk a little bit about what's going on at Fisher Paykel and and maybe a little bit for our listeners to understand where you guys are at and where you're going. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great opportunity, and we're uh, definitely looking forward to the, having a chat. So, Justin, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about uh, the company's mission and philosophy and how it revolves around your respiratory care division and products. Yeah, yep, for sure, Tim. So, I guess, um, so we've been, um, you may or may not know this, but we've been in business now for 50 years. So, that's uh, essentially, you know, we just celebrated that last year. So, five decades of um of designing innovative products in the respiratory care space. So we've been a, a pure play respiratory company for 50 years um, and it's been our sort of our 100% focus over that time. Um, and, and I think from a philosophy's perspective, we're, we're very much an en- uh, engineering-driven company and so it's all about innovation. Um, you know, our, our CEO is an engineer. The CEO prior to that was an engineer. Um, so it's very engineering driven as, a, as an organization. And our focus is really on, um, on innovation. And so we've, over the years, we've developed this incredible depth of engineering talent and broad engineering talent. And that's really what I think sets us apart. Yeah, it's always interesting. And again, uh, you know, we know that uh, engineering and technology is a big part of the respiratory care profession at what potentially makes us a little bit unique from the average or typical bedside caregivers uh, that we work with uh, in, in ICUs and around the country. And so that is a, you know, component that we hear over and over again. It's really about innovation and technology and and moving forward with, with you know, the patient care focus. Maybe you could provide us a little bit of insight about the company and its culture and, and, and the employees. You are a, a global company and, and have a North American base, but tell us a little bit more about the company and, and what the company is about and the kind of people that work with you there. I, I sure will. So maybe just sort of um, starting out, because culture is an interesting one to describe culture, isn't it? It's always a, uh, you know, when you get asked that question, how do you how do you sort of best describe the culture? And a lot of time it's best to ask the employees, you know, they tell you what they feel about the company. But maybe I'll give you a bit of background and give some colour to that. So we, you know, our philosophy around uh, product development has, um, we, we, we start with uh, focusing on what's best for the patient. So because we always felt that you know if if we can if it's better for the patient then ultimately it will be better for the caregiver and ultimately that will have a flow on effect to better healthcare economics and so that what's best for the patient kind of approach is how that's where we how we innovate you know and if we think about that that's why we have to be very engineering focused and build that depth of knowledge to be able to sort of truly innovate in that space so we focus on the patient first so when we go back to looking at our um our culture, that message is delivered across our team. And it's all about all that sort of this relentless pursuit for improving patient care 
and uh, all of the employees see that they know it they know it's we're, we're all about doing that and so it becomes uh you know we, we we talk about this sort of drives this common mission of care and so we care about what we're doing we care about trying to improve what's best for the patient and we also very much care about our employees so we, we have a balance in our business about we've got this very strong mission everybody understands it's about improving patient care and then also about balance for our employees so they have a good quality of life and enjoy their jobs. Um, and so we, we have a balanced approach across our business, across the globe, and therefore you end up in a, in a culture that has no real hierarchy per se. You know, everyone's on the same mission, everyone's focused for the same things. And I think that just gives a, um, a very passionate team of people. And across the, across the globe, we have a passionate team of individuals. And hopefully some of that shows up, you know, when our, our, we're in front of our customers as well, you know, and they can see that our team is quite passionate and very focused on what we do. Yeah, I like that answer because in in our intro, one of the things I talk about with our our corporate partner program is is where these synergies come together and how this really works is due to the fact that both AARC and our members as well as our corporate partners really focus on high quality, cost effective, patient centric respiratory care. And again, uh, you know, it's it's focusing on the patient, and that's the key part. Yeah, it really is. It all starts there, actually. And as I was saying, if you can innovate in that area. And actually, if it's better for the patient, ultimately, it's going to have a great flow on effect. It just always tends to work out that way. So that's where we that's where we start when we start innovating. Well, I, th- I think that's a great lead into the next question that I was thinking about as you were talking about innovation and, and patient centric or patient focused care. So tell us a little bit about your respiratory products and what, what you see coming in, in future developments, because you said we're innovative and we're patient centric. So so tell us about your products and, and, and that patient centricity. Yeah. Well, I won't tell you any real secrets, but I can, I can tell you what I can <laughs> as far as, you know, what's coming. But I think, um, you know, so just so, just give you a bit of background about the, the, the company and, and what we do. So so humidification really is the core. You know, that's what we started doing 50 years ago is we developed a heated humidifier for better patient care. You know, that's where it all started. And really today, all of our products, humidification is kind of the, comp- the core component to that. And so over that time, we've developed therapies that all have a basis of humidification and all the appropriate accessories that, that connect to that to that basis. And those therapies, um, you know, we start out with invasive ventilation as our primary focus for, you know, improving that, but also bringing in innovation in to make the breathing circuits better and the whole system work really well as a complete system for invasive. And then that's moved on to, that's led on to high flow therapy in the recent years, probably back in the sort of late 80s. And that's where a lot of innovation has been coming out is in high flow therapy. And we can talk a bit about that a bit later. Maybe we'll we'll get into that. But humidification is the core to that as well, because the only way you can achieve those kind of flow rates is to have really well understood humidification technology. Um, And then that goes on to, um, so we, you know, so with invasive ventilation, high flow therapy, and then non-invasive ventilation, they all require humidification at some point. And so that's where our, our competency is. And, and we've used that as the core. And then we've innovated on all of the components that attach to the humidifier, you know, the breathing circuits, the patient interface, and so on. And that's right through from, a, from the neonatal patient all the way through to the adult patient, but also across the continuum. So from the emergency department through the hospital stay for the patient and then then into the home. And so we really, it's quite a broad view of it. It seems like a unique product humidification, but it has such a broad application when you turn it into a complete therapy in itself. And that's what we're learning and that's where we're innovating. I think what we're also finding, you know, I mentioned at the beginning here that we've been 50 years focused on respiratory care. Um, we continue to do that. But we, we have also been invading into other areas of care, which particularly in surgical um, in the surgical space, 
again, with the core component being humidification. And so there's there's a lot of work we've been doing globally in, in surgical and it hasn't really hit the US um, shores yet and it will in the future. Um, and that's a big, big opportunity for us to innovate, you know, truly innovate into, um, into a, a new area completely. And a lot of the other things we're doing is around this care continuum. So how can we you know, so our goal is not only for, for better patient, when you look at better patient care, you look at how can we treat this patient better, but also what environment can we be treating the patient, you know, rather than and can we move them into a lower acuity environment or even into their home. And so it's a combination of things there because that all ends ultimately is better patient care. Uh, potentially, and also better economics. And so uh, a lot of what we're doing also now is, so for the, some of the future things there, is being able to better care for patients on the general floor rather than particularly having them in the ICU and adjusting our technologies to allow you to do that better. And then, of course, um, into the home, get them into the home. And if we can treat the right types of patients correctly in the home, we can also look to try and reduce um, you know, readmissions back into the hospital. And so there's a lot of work going on there, Tim. And humidification also uh, led to uh, innovation in the sleep therapy space, which has had a significant impact um, on how we treat those patients. And that's also allowed us to build a considerable expertise in the CPAP interface uh, mask uh, space as well. And so humidification has played a big role in that. The knowledge, though, that we've developed um, on interfaces has also sort of rolled over into the non-invasive interfaces that are used in the acute care setting. So we're now able to take technology from both the home care CPAP um, interface and, and sort of port that across into the hospital space as well. And so that, again, humidification got us there and then it led into other innovation as we as we grew as a company. Both of those those areas we've launched new products into recently um, and in the home care space, um, Avora is a new product we just launched, uh, which is a compact nasal mask. And that has um, introduced a new technology we call CapFit, which is all about easing, easing the patient to fit the mask and fit it themselves um, in their own environment. Uh, and then more recently, we launched the Navero, which is our hospital-based non-invasive mask, um, which also incorporates some of the similar technology, particularly around the seal, and we call that RollFit technology um, that lessens the the seal lessens the chance of skin breakdown on the patient's uh, face uh, and also allows the application of an NG tube under the seal uh, quite successfully as well. And so there's two things that we look at with, with innovation. There's the product side and then there's the research side because everything we do is based on research. So, you know, we go out to, to the, you know, our sales teams, uh, when we are training our sales teams, it's all about education. So we educate our teams with research and data, and we ask them to educate our customers with the same research and data. So the customer then makes their own mind up as to what's the right thing to do for, for the patient. But we do heavily rely on on data and evidence. And so that's where a lot of our other innovation goes into is how do we, how do we actually, you know, because we, we're trying to change clinical practice, particularly in certain areas, and changing clinical practice, as you know, is, is, is difficult to do, you know, um, over, and, and takes a long time. And so you need the technology to be able to do the research um, so that you can then further develop that technology along the way. And so, but ultimately what that ends up happening for us is that we have a really good message, really good evidence-based messaging tied to what we try to do um, to take out to the market. And that's, I think that's what our customers need so that they can make good decisions, you know, what to do. Well, I, I, I appreciate that answer. And, and again, it, I think it was touching on, on things that were running through my, my head. Um, you know, we're, we're really talking about improving patient care and technologies and, and moving to things that are evidence and clinical based. And you talked a little bit about that and how you use that data. So when you talk about data and in evidence-based medicine, are these things that are investigator-initiated or things that, that Fisher-Paykel is funding uh, in large studies, or, or how are you achieving that data? 
Um, it's a bit of both, actually, because we um, – so, you know, if, if it comes down to the, you know, an idea, and an idea generally comes from our engineering teams being in the field, you know, working with, working with clinicians, and they'll identify a way a clinician's working with a patient or a treatment that's happening on a patient. Think, you know, there could be a better way of doing this. And so it starts with us coming up with the idea, and then we, have to, we, we talk to clinicians, and, and then they'll, they'll go away and think, you know what, we need to really research it. This is how we should research it. And so they'll initiate the, the pathway there. Some of that um, early research happens um, in the European markets. It's just easier to get a product into that market than it is, you know, as you, you know very well, Tim, to get things started. So we end up with the both. But I th- I'd say that because we're, we've got the interest in trying to change the clinical practice or introduce a new, you know, a new technology, uh, we end up having to, to initiate a lot of the research early on. And then we find researchers just want to self-initiate it themselves because they want to know more you know, about what, what it is we're saying or, or, or confirm what it is that we've learned. And, and high flow therapy is a great example of that, the amount of research that's been going on, both um, F&P initiated and researcher initiated is incredible globally. And, and I think, again, the other piece you talked about is not only the, the cradle to the grave aspects from a patient population, but the continuum of care. Because for many years, we've thought about technologies like this in the acute care setting and, and maybe even post-acute care. But you did mention it and you mentioned moving into the home. And so that is areas you're looking at because I know we have pulmonary hypertension patients, interstitial lung disease patients that actually have O2 needs, higher O2 needs. That needs to be humidified. And so you guys are looking at expanding outside the hospital Walls, so to speak. Yeah, we we really are, and so. But that, but to your uh, previous question there, that starts with research. You know, it's and and what we've found is doing good quality RCT type you know uh, research in the hospital is relatively easy in comparison to doing it in the home. You know, doing these things in the home is so difficult because of the uncontrolled environment. But you need the research to know for sure whether you're having an impact. You know, and, and so in the home, by its nature, it's chronic rather than, you know, in the hospital, it's acute. You can get you, you can get answers pretty quickly as whether things are having an impact or not. In the home, by nature, it tends to be chronic, so it takes a long time. So you, you, you're talking, you know, these are several year-long studies of trying to recruit patients and, and then really have enough patients to show the right types of outcomes. And so we've been working on that now for, for well, a number of years. Um, and there's early evidence coming out, particularly around the COPD population, because that's, that's who we're focused on at the moment is COPD. You mentioned some other disease states there, and I think they are um, affiliated in some in various ways. But the primary area we're thinking about is if we are to do something to improve patient care, what group of patients has struggled a lot? And, and, and there's a big group of patients, and it's COPD for sure. And so they cost a lot. There's a, it's a big group um, and they really have a poor quality of life. And so that's what we've been focused on in the, in the home space is trying to work out if what we do product-wise can actually truly have a long-term health impact on those patients, not only in cost, but also just, and the, and the real part is, is, again, patient care. If their quality of life improves and they feel better and they go to the hospital less often, they're going to be feeling great about it. And that's going to have a flow on effect for health economics. So we don't really worry so much about the health economics at the beginning. We just worry about, can we actually improve the, the, the patient's quality of care? And, and the early indication is it's working. And so we've just got to get more data. And so we can, where we can be convinced and also that we can convince the, the community that it's the way to go. Well, 
You know, it was interesting as, as you were talking about the engineers going into the field and talking to clinicians and learning from clinicians and clinicians learning from them. It made me think about the next question I want to ask, and that is really what types of patient or professional education activities does F&P find beneficial? And, and I think that's a great example from, from learning from each other. But what, what kind of things are you focused on from a patient or professional education standpoint? Yeah, it's a good uh, good question. So I think from from our perspective, there's a number of things there. So we tend to, you know, we talk a lot about KOLs, you know, and we internally a key opinion leader development. And so we look to develop relationships with key opinion leaders across the globe. And it's not so much like a medical advisory board type scenario. It's more about a broad relation, a relationship with a broad number of KOLs, so that we can really share the knowledge and learn from from everywhere. And so those that KOL type approach, when we get experts in the field and they can give us their opinions and they introduce us to other areas that we may not have known about, you know, and, and really help broaden our, our knowledge. But then we use that to, and that's where we, we then lead towards using those types of KOL relationships to lead symposiums to help educate um, and help share the education and knowledge that we're developing. So we rely a lot on those symposium type approach to things, you know, KOL led type symposiums and also a similar model, but more workshop focused, which we've been doing a lot globally. We intend to do a lot more in the U.S., where the workshop type environment is great for clinicians to come and have a proper opportunity to sit down and go through a workshop of understanding not only research, but also technology. So we, we leverage a lot of that. And then, of course, webinars and, and that type of approach to things as well is very important to us. And that, that tends to, because again, going back to my earlier point there, a lot of what we do is about education, you know, because we aren't manufacturing or developing a new widget per se, you know, or a, a better one or different, you know, we're, def- we're a lot of the time we're having to try and change a bit of clinical practice or clinical understanding. And so therefore education is key to what we do. Any platform where we can have an opportunity to educate, we, we make the most of it. Um, so that's kind of what we focus on, I guess. The more things t- change sometimes, the less they change and vice versa, right? So, uh, you know, humidification, we all know it's important. But again, as you're talking about moving across the continuum of care, making patient comfort uh, a key priority, and then looking at that continuum of care actually brings on different educational challenges. It certainly does. Yeah, it certainly does. And it's such a broad, particularly in the US market, it's very broad. There's a lot of touch points for patients. You know, a lot of people involved and trying to get that message out has been, and, and, that, and that'll be a good lead on to it, you know, just if we just talk about COVID, some things that have happened during that as well. But um, that is... Um, that is for sure. Yeah, well, Justin, it's 2020, and and I can't let you off the hook or off this podcast if we don't talk about COVID. And COVID has uh, kind of taken the all-consuming uh, stance of, of healthcare and, and what's going on in healthcare. So, you know, tell us a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about the challenges COVID-19 has brought uh, to F&P and you guys, or potentially uh, new enlightenments or doors that have opened and, and thoughts that uh, we never really uh, considered in the past. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, no, obviously, you know, it's, it's, um, there's been a lot said about COVID, hasn't there? over this year and I won't state any of the obvious, but it's definitely brought on challenges for us. And there's also been some silver linings there. And I think we'll look back on this pandemic and things will change because of it. And I think that's what we're we, you know, you got to focus on, don't you, is what's going to be the positives that come out of out of the pandemic. But from a from our company's perspective, the you know, we like many um, companies in our space, particularly in the respiratory space, you know, we were challenged globally. You know, we we were first seeing the impact of COVID in China back in um, late January. So we kind of knew things were going to you know, what we were seeing in China, we could see, you know, if, you know, we didn't know if it was going to go the way it went, you know, but we, was, we, we were prepared in, in, to a certain extent that this is what it will look like when it hits some of the other markets. And so we had to ramp up production significantly where, as, as you mentioned, we're a global player. And that involved just a tremendous effort from our teams. You know, we've, you know, and this is where the culture comes to play a, a big 
a big part of your company's success is because you know, this, with this care approach, you know, we care for our staff and care for our people and they care for their customers. The teams got together and, and really rallied both at all of our manufacturing sites, you know, as a global organisation. And we were able to quickly increase capacities on all of our products. Um, COVID, you know, as you know, the patients that are suffering from COVID, particularly those patients admitted into hospital, you know, our products are front and centre on a lot of them. You know, they're using a lot of them. So it had a real big impact on our, on us being able to deal with that. We also um, focused on two things. We basically said to ourselves that, well, we've got to take care of our staff because they run the business. We've got to keep them safe. So we put a lot of things in place to do that. And then we've got to make sure we can get product to the hospitals for the patients that need it. And, and as you would have heard across the industry, there's a lot of purchasing going on, you know, stockpiling, pre- preparedness, and we're seeing that globally around the world. Health system, you know, governments stockpiling products and everybody was trying to prepare for, for their country and their environment. And, and we, had to, we had to put a team together to manage all that. What should we do with this group and what do we need to do for this, for this group? And so we put a um, completely changed our business model, essentially, about how we ship product, how we, um, we do allocation. We want an allocation model. And I think we managed it pretty well. You know, the feedback we got was it worked quite well, but it, it did require us to not supply these big, massive orders that customers wanted, been able to talk to them about it, explain to them and give them the confidence that we can manage it for them. You know, you don't need to, to buy six months' worth of product. Let us manage it. You know, we've got a, a very sophisticated team. You won't run out of product. And so that's what we had to gain that confidence with our customers, particularly in the US and, and also in Canada, and then manage, manage their expectations. And I think we managed to work through the early stages really well. Our, our, our distribution partners helped us with that as well. And so now we're in a position where... Um, we're now getting into preparedness now. So we've actually over the initial hump, everybody understands, and I could talk a lot about what's happened with how to treat patients, but everybody understands what they need, what they don't need, what they should be prepared for if this gets worse, you know, or if it stays the same even, you know, what's currently we're seeing today. And so we feel in a much better position to manage in, in a more controlled fashion. Whereas the first couple of months, it was 24 hours a day, working all night, trying to make decisions and work through, you know, allocation processes. And now we've, we've got our hands around it. We're feeling really good about it. it um, but we learned a lot. And, and I think we've, you know, we're, we're on the, we're in control now, which is probably the best scenario we could be in. But I think, so from that, that's kind of how we reacted to the market and to the existing market. But what we saw though, Tim, which we touched on is a real change in clinical practice right from the beginning to what's happening now. And it was a kind of a rush of, we were trying to identify what's, what's working and what's not working. And we're hearing all sorts of approaches to patient care, you know, when a patient turns up. And we know they're, they're, they're presenting, you know, with, with hypoxemia, and that was the fundamental thing they were trying to treat. And everyone had a different approach. And some of those approaches were driven by just not knowing you know, not knowing about aerosol dispersion. And so if I don't know about it, I don't want to take the risk, you know, so therefore this is what we're going to do. So there was a rush to try and understand more and more. So we're getting information out of China, we're getting it out of Europe. There were various health organisations putting out guidelines that varied, then they started to look fairly similar, um, you know, and they all had their caveats, you know, because again, we're just learning and learning and, and it, we need to be careful. But I think that's what's great about it because we've learned a lot. And, and in, there's even some fantastic researchers here in the US that, that have already published data on COVID patients, you know, significant volumes of COVID patients, and they've published outcome data on. And so it's been, it's been amazing how quickly they've gathered that information, you know, been able to put it out there and, and share it with, the, with, with what their learnings were. And, um, and, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier about um, things starting out with, you know, an oxygen mask. And if the patient doesn't respond well to an oxygen mask, just 
intubate the patient. And and then it, you know, and it changed for all sorts of reasons. But but now it's changed a lot. And I think now what we've learned particularly is that these patients don't do well on a ventilator as well as you would have we would have hoped. And any non-invasive therapy is the way to go. High flow seems to be the easiest one to apply because you, they can actually apply it in the emergency department and they can still communicate with the patient, you know, so they can get onto the patient quickly. But what we've learned the most, so we've been, and I talked before about changing clinical practice, we've been spending the last 20 years, probably 20 more years researching, talking about high flow therapy. And COVID's really put a spotlight on it broadly because you've now got all levels of medical care involved and they're all trying to understand how to best treat these patients. And because of that, we've got ED physicians, you know, of course, respiratory therapists, because they're our backbone to what we do, pulmonologists, but, but right across the respiratory, the medical field, trying to understand what is this therapy? How, does, how do I use it? How do I apply it? What's effective? You know, and, you know, because I want to treat this patient as quickly as I can and move them to an area of the hospital where they can be cared for. And so the two things that we had to overcome was, is there a concern with aerosol dispersion or not? Now, what does the data say? And fortunately, again, research has moved quick to do some testing and data, and all the data is pointing in the same direction. So there's no, there's no data. There's no data really saying it's unsafe, other than your what you think. You know, because people going to think, well, I think it could it's probably going to be unsafe. But all of the research says it's not. Yeah, that it's it's quite safe, and, and if used appropriately and the right precautions. And so I think. That's probably the biggest hurdle people are slowly now getting confidence with. You know, we had various areas of people confident. Say, yeah, no, we've read the data. We're confident this won't increase uh, caregiver, you know, exposure. And they put the right precautions in place. And there are others now getting more and more comfort with that. So that's probably the big thing that, that, that changed there. But more, but probably more importantly is clinicians now have started to realise, what do I need to do with high flow for it to truly work? And early on um, with high flow therapy, Tim, you may be aware of this, but the clinicians typically weren't, weren't sure about what flow rates to use, you know. And so high flow, I mean, you, you say 60 litres per minute to it. Some people that think, man, there's no way a patient's going to tolerate 60 litres per minute. That's a high flow. And so there was always this hesitation to go there. And, and so flows would start lower and, and maybe at 30 litres per minute. But then ultimately you end up chasing the patient. And I think what's been learned from this data and from the data that's come out and, and with the number of patients that... The, you deliver these high, these high flows right at the beginning. It's very the patients can tolerate it. It's quite comfortable when you start at sixty liters per minute. You don't start down at, at a low rate. Um, and the data is showing that that that's that's where the evidence points to as you prevent intubations and you prevent it if you deliver high flows. And so the term high flow is quite a generic term, but what's high is is sort of up to the individual's perception. What we've learned high is fifty to sixty liters per minute. That that's what tends to and all the data says it. And, and that's what we're getting more and more confidence with ourselves. And, and so now we can hopefully, our clinicians get more confidence with that as well. And that could really change things moving forward about, you know, when a patient turns up to the ED, what do I first do? And they've got, you know, this respiratory distress, what's the best thing to do? And we think that's going to change. If it does change, it'll be good for the, for the patient and it'll be good for the hospital because now I've got this very non-invasive therapy on, on the patient and I can potentially move this patient to a less acute area, acute area of the hospital, um, which may help you know, um, the throughput through the emergency department and, and that type of thing. And so so I think that's probably the silver lining is, is it's really everyone's opened their eyes and listened up to, hey, what's the data say? You know, what's the evidence say? Yeah, and I think that is, you know, we had SARS and we had MERS and we got all prepared or so so we thought we got prepared and they never came. They never really built to the the pandemic uh, as as we were expecting. And so I think, you know, we, we tiptoed into COVID thinking, oh, here we go, you know, 
all over again. We're going to get all ramped up and, and, and it's a nothing. Uh, and then when we saw the data coming out of Europe, it, it looked bad. And when it got to the U.S. and hit the East Coast, it was really bad. And, and I think, you know, uh, what you pointed out is lessons learned. Look, we didn't know what we didn't know. But the worst thing we can do is is not take the lessons that we learned from COVID and apply them going forward to be better prepared. And and it was fascinating. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about from the clinical bedside standpoint and what RTs and nurses and physicians were dealing with. Never really thought about the lessons learned from a manufacturing and distribution standpoint and all the things that you guys had to do. Uh, if there's one thing that I think we quasi dropped the ball on in the U.S., it was in preparation and being able to disperse things, be it people, ventilators, whatever the case is, initially where we needed them. And so, again, it's, it's good to know that companies like uh, F&P are looking at how to be prepared and distribute and not create panic. I go to the store, I still I still look at an empty shelves for toilet paper and paper towels, and I don't know what that's all about, but good to know, right? Yeah, I oh, know. That's right. We were calling it the toilet paper syndrome at the beginning of our, of our you know, of this whole exercise and trying to... Um, yeah, and you're right, but we've but we have learned, and you know, you learn. You know, these are these are unprecedented times, aren't they? You know, and uh, and and so I think there'll be a lot of learnings from this, both as you said, from a production distribution side as much as from a clinical application side of things. Well, I, I want to wrap up, uh, Justin, uh, and and you mentioned something about COVID really brought the spotlight to high flow, and and at the ARC we say COVID really brought the spotlight to the role of the respiratory therapist and the importance. So maybe you could tell us a little bit as a longtime corporate partner what you find the value in your relationship with the AARC and respiratory therapists to be. Well, you know that's a that's a um, many answers to that quick to to that uh, question. <laughs> Firstly, to your point, COVID, COVID, as you said, it's put a spotlight on I me. Mean, who's better prepared to take care of these patients, these respiratory patients with respiratory you know, conditions than the, than the RTs across the country. And, and I think to us, um, that's what's fabulous about this relationship with the AARCs because firstly, respiratory therapy, as many of the listeners know, is fairly unique to North America. You know, Canada and the US is primarily where respiratory therapy is, is a is a you know separate area, and whereas across the rest of the world, it's mo- it's mostly you know various levels of nursing that, that deal with the same types of scenarios that RTs are facing. And so, for us, being able to focus into an area of respiratory therapists is important. The ARC is the way of doing that. We're a respiratory company. We're trying to innovate and change clinical practice in certain areas of some of the new technologies. And respiratory therapists are our partner in getting that done. You know, we spend a lot of time in front of with respiratory therapists, and I think I think it goes. I mean, it's just a, it's not even a question whether whether or why we would would not be a corporate partner with the AARC because that's our that's our core customer group. And being that partner, I think, gives us a lot of exposure there, a lot of opportunity, and and, and as you know, going back to I've, I've said many times, opportunity to share what we learn with with that with the group, you know, in education. I think that's what we want to continue to be able to do is to share with respiratory therapists that. Um, this is what we're learning. We want to share it with you so you can practice it on the bedside, you know, and, and, and make your right decisions. And, and so it's just been a, it's been a great relationship over the years, you know, and we've been very fortunate. And I think you know, when I look at our operations in other parts of the world, we don't have a group like the respiratory community, the respiratory therapy community. There's not, there's not that type of a group. And when we're doing product development, it's always about, well, what's North America say <laughs> versus the rest of the world? Because it, because it's so focused and, and it's great because it, they identify things that are very unique about this is how we care for patients because we can spend the time to do it um, and we might need to do it differently and we learn from that. And so it's a, um, it's a really unique opportunity for us and so it's, it's been a great relationship and, and a platform, as I mentioned before, for us to really access and train and educate those, um, that group of people. 
Well, Justin, I want to take this opportunity to thank you and your colleagues at Fisher Paykel for, for sharing a little bit about the company with us uh, on our Corporate Partner Podcast today. Any any closing thoughts or final comments? Uh, no, Tim, look, look, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And, and as I was mentioning before, um, this, uh, you know, this year is a really unique year, isn't it, really, with COVID and, and the role of respiratory therapies is is definitely in the spotlight because that's um, that's what's happening out there. And, and I just like to say that you know what what I see, you know, we have this culture of care within our organisation, and we're seeing our people respond really well to all getting on board and doing things. And the stories I'm hearing out in the hospitals from respiratory therapy, what some of the teams are doing, we're hearing these stories of the dedication for, of the RTs spending extra extra hours, you know, doing all this time and, and exposed on the front lines. It's just amazing to me. You know, you don't really see it, you know, until now it's in the spotlight. You see what these teams are up to. So I just, I want to give a shout out to the whole respiratory community on that as a big thank you and of doing such a fantastic job. And so I'm really impressed and uh, it's great to be part of, you know, saving people's lives. Well, Justin, we want to thank you too. And, and again, uh, we couldn't do what we do for our patients without innovation, technology and, and companies like Fisher Pickell. So on behalf of the ARC and, and our 45,000 members, thank you as well. Thanks a lot, Tim. And uh, yeah, it was an enjoyable time and I really appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ARC Corporate Partners Podcast. Be sure to check our show notes page for links to our featured corporate partner as well as other podcast episodes. Be the first to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast. Until the next time, my friends, keep on supporting the respiratory therapy profession and stay safe.